So, so if you've been around our, our church any time at all, you know that we place a high value here on the exposition of Scripture. Uh, and that when I preach, I don't want to just stand up here and uh, give you a motivational speech or a, a self-help lecture. And those things are great, and they have their place, uh, but that place isn't from the pulpit. And so instead, I try every week with God's help to take a particular text of Scripture and explain its meaning in light of the, uh, the context of the book in which it was written and of uh, the literary and historical and, and cultural considerations of its message uh, and of its place within the Bible as a whole. And, and I do that with a goal in mind. Uh, I'm on a mission. I've got an agenda. And that agenda is that the Word of God would not just pass through your ears, but that it would stir your mind to think. To think about the deep questions uh, of life and uh, the assumptions of your worldview, and even more, uh, that the things that you hear in this place would mold you not into my image, but that you and I together would be molded by the text of Scripture into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the text that we're going to consider today in Psalm 19 really goes right to the core and the foundation of the faith and the worldview that we propose and expound week after week here in this place, whether uh, it's in Wednesday night Bible study, uh, or whether it's in Sunday school, or here in worship. And so what I want to do is read Psalm 19 to you today, uh, and then we'll begin to unpack it together. But if you're, I see several people have your Bibles, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, so if you're following along, this is Psalm 19 to the choir master, a Psalm of David. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving His chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing that is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you know, I don't know about you, but I love the beautiful imagery of that, of that psalm and the, the really the grand and majestic way that it describes the, uh, the work and the words of God in creation. But even more than that, what I really want you to see today uh, is that they're more than just beautiful words, but they're also truth claims. They are bold assertions. They are unapologetic statements of our faith and of our worldview that it's centered in God. Uh, and that's the 
second or third time I've referred to the idea of worldview. So before I go any further, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page, we know what we're talking about, and that you understand what I mean. Uh, and the short answer to that is it's just your outlook on life. Uh, and everybody's got one, whether you know it or not. Uh, whether you are Billy Graham or Billy the Kid, whether you are uh, Kim Jong-un or Kim Kardashian, whether you uh, are religious or irreligious or college-educated or a kindergarten dropout, uh, everybody has got a worldview. Uh, and the worldview that you hold, whatever it is, basically offers you uh, the four answers to the four essential questions of life. Uh, and this is not my idea. This is, several scholars have put this forward. But these four essential questions that they answer are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Right? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So for, as to our origin, we ask ourselves the question, where did I come from? I am meaning. We, we all want to know, why am I here? When we talk about issues of morality, uh, the question is, how should I conduct myself in this world in which I find myself? Uh, and as to our destiny, everybody wants to know where I'm headed. Uh, not, not just here, but when I die. And those are the, the four basic questions of our existence. Questions uh, the people, no matter who they are, are trying to answer. And, and just by those cast of characters that I named to you, uh, and their different points of view, it's pretty obvious uh, that some worldviews are better than others, right? Uh, and there are a whole lot of them out there to choose from. Uh, we can choose from a worldview of Christianity, the worldview of Islam or secular humanism, or New Age spiritism, uh, and on and on. But since choosing a worldview is perhaps one of the most important things a person can do, and since it has eternal consequences, it's extremely important that we have a trustworthy method to evaluate the options, because no matter which one you choose, your worldview colors the way that you experience and process everything that we see around us. So you have to choose wisely. And so what I'd like to do today is have uh, you and I take our own particular worldviews and just, just in your own heart and mind, you don't have to share this with anybody else, uh, but I'd like each of us to examine our own particular worldviews through three tests that can be applied to them to see how your own particular one holds up. You ready to do that? All right. And you keep an open mind for the next, I was going to say 20 minutes, but I'll try to keep it shorter than that. <clears throat> But there are three tests that we're going to use to examine our worldview. And the first one is logical consistency. That means, is it reasonable? Right? And then imperial adequacy. Is there evidence to sustain it? And finally, experiential relevance. Does it have practical applications to my everyday life and its ups and downs? Does my worldview answer uh, those kitchen table questions that we agonize over? Uh, and then what I want to do is through the vehicle of Scripture is to show you that when submitted to those three tests, the Christian message is utterly unique and meets the demands for truth at every single level. And that even more than that, it is worthy of your absolute trust. And the first way we discover that uh, today in our text is when David describes the eloquence of creation. And he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies above proclaim his handiwork. And in this very first sentence, we see the bold declaration that this is God's world. He created it, uh, and that it reveals his glory and shows what he's done. And most importantly, that he has placed it in motion and that he is a powerful, intelligent, creative, and communicating God. You know, that's one of the very first things that we learn from the Bible is that God talks. 
He's a speaking God. Genesis 1-3 says, And God said. See, God is not silent. He talks to us. And Psalm 19 describes how he does that. Uh, and it's laid out in the first half of the text in Psalm 19 uh, with his proclamation that God speaks to us through nature and that the heavens declare his glory. Uh, that's what theologians call general revelation, that God reveals his power and reveals his greatness through the created order to all people everywhere. Uh, and then in the second half of the psalm, David tells us that God speaks through his word, the Bible. Uh, and that's called special revelation. And it means that God speaks to anyone, anywhere, who picks up this book and reads it. Anyone who picks up this book and reads the inspired words of the scriptures that it contains. So, what we're saying is that God speaks to us through the skies and through the scriptures. Through the the natural world and through the spiritual. Through the personal experiences and circumstances of life. uh, But even through the empirical evidence of science. And I'll give you a really quick example of that. Uh, There was a story that circulated some years ago about Sherlock Holmes and his loyal companion, Dr. Watson. Uh, And I don't know about you guys, but Vicki and I love Dr. Holmes and Watson stories. Uh, But they were together one evening on a camping trip, and uh, that evening after a very good meal, they put out the campfire, lay down for the night, and went to sleep. And then some hours later, uh, Sherlock Holmes woke up, and he he elbowed Watson, and he said, Watson, look, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And so Watson said, Uh, Well, I see millions and millions of stars. Sherlock Holmes said, what does that tell you? Watson pondered the question for a minute, and then he said, well, uh, astronomically it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Uh, He said, astrologically I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Uh, Horologically I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are very small by comparison. Uh, And meteorologically, I can see that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Uh, Why, Holmes, what does that tell you? Sherlock Holmes was silent for a minute and then he uh, answered brusquely, Watson, you idiot, it tells me that someone has stolen our tent. And, and, and you know, but I think the same thing can be said about the day and time that we live in because we are living in a time where we have an unlimited source of information at our fingertips through tablets and smartphones and computers, but we don't have an overarching worldview to examine it through. And because of that, we've lost the ability to know if anything we know is really true uh, or if we've had our philosophical tent stolen out from over us. And uh, I related this story before I know, uh, I'm sure in Sunday school, but, you know, when I still worked at the pharmacy, a a very dear friend of mine just completed her uh, undergraduate work in psychology and and planning on on finishing her degree for a a career in that field. And I will never forget, as long as I live, her coming to me a few days after she got her diploma and saying to me, "Uh, you know, Joe, I've put all of these years and all of this money into my degree, and the only thing in college that I learned for certain is that we can't know anything for certain. That's scary. 
She said, the only thing that I learned for certain is that we can't know anything for certain. And that, brothers and sisters, is the environment into which we are sending our kids to be molded in their thinking and in their outlook on the world. And what we're teaching them is they need to reject the faith of their fathers and mothers and adopt a purely secular worldview uh, that looks at life only in terms of science. Because, you know, when, uh, when modern people hear talk of mixing science and faith, uh, sometimes they don't know whether to just stay silent or get ready for a heated debate. Uh, and the story we often hear from the academic world goes something like this. Uh, with the rise of science and technology, belief in God is foolish. Uh, it's superfluous. It no longer has meaning. Um, and from that worldview, they assume then that miracles can't happen and that science and faith cannot mix. But today, as we continue to put our assumptions about the world around us through those three tests for truth, I want to demonstrate for you three reasons that science and faith, that reason and the Christian religion are compatible. Uh, And the first of those being that try as they might, scientists cannot escape the question of God. Uh, The story of science and faith is much more complicated than we've been led to believe. Uh, And some of the most outspoken atheists and skeptics Uh, have uh, painted an overly simplistic picture that's anything but scientific. Uh, The truth is actually much more interesting because the real truth is that science, for all that it's accomplished, only has the power to describe the world around us. It doesn't have the power to explain it. Does that make sense? It only has the power to describe the world we find ourselves in. It doesn't have the power to explain it. You see, science can tell us Uh, how the laws of gravity work, but they can't tell us why the laws of gravity are there to begin with. Uh, Science can tell us that the sun is the closest star to the earth and that it radiates as as solar energy, light and heat that makes life possible here, but it can't tell us how it got there. Uh, And and even the the eminent doctor, uh, Stephen Hawking, who during his life was very strident in his support of atheist causes, doesn't end up in his thinking where you think he might. Uh, he ended his, uh, his book, A Brief History of Time, with this remarkable passage. And listen to this. He wrote, What is it that breathes fire into the scientist's equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Evidently, he doesn't know. Uh, but in our text today, using some poetic language, David tells us God has set a tent for the sun, a, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber like a strong man running its course with joy. Uh, It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And in those verses, uh, what he is giving us here is not only a beautiful metaphorical description of the natural world, but of who put it in motion and of who maintains its order with a logical consistency that matches up with both the laws of science and the truth of God's word. Uh, You know, in a a later interview before he died in Reason Magazine, uh, Hawkins is quoted as saying, the overwhelming impression of the universe is one of order. And the more we discover about the universe, the more we find that it's governed by rational laws. Uh, And that takes me to my next point, is, which is uh, the universe is well-ordered. It's not a place of chaos. You know, if you pick up almost any scientific journal... Before long, you see that the question of God is on the minds of scientists and philosophers. Uh, And and you may ask yourself why. But the reason is because nature is more ordered and life-centered than they thought. 
Uh, and it has led many creation scientists further and further into recognizing the rational mind of God behind everything. That's why David wrote in verse 2, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So he's saying literally, uh, every single day floods out the truth of God like an open fire hydrant. Where one day leaves off, the next one picks up. And where that day ends, the night takes over. And day and night, this witness of God's glory has been constant since the beginning of time. And its witness is so comprehensive, it spans the globe. Uh, language and, and culture are not a barrier to it. Uh, and neither is distance. Because the Bible says the voice of the heavens reaches the farthest corners of the world. Right? Think about it. A, a woman in New Guinea can look up and see the Southern Cross. Uh, a man in Finland can look up and see the Big Dipper. Uh, men and women in every age and in every place have seen uh, God's glory in his handiwork. Uh, and not just in the layout of the heavens, but in every bit of creation. Which leads me to, to point three, and that is nature bears the marks of its creator. And probably uh, the greatest evidence of that has really just come to light in the last few decades uh, because it's seen in the genetic material from which every living thing on the planet is made out of, and that's DNA. Uh, Dr. John Lennox, who maybe some of you have heard of, professor, professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford uh, and fellow in philosophy at Green Templeton College, uh, spent years teaching this now, and he, he likes to use this illustration of a, a person taking a walk uh, on an empty stretch of beach. When all at once the, the person walks around the edge of a sand dune and sees their name and their address written out in the sand, uh, and they stop amazed and think, wow, what a coincidence. Now, wouldn't you think that person was crazy? Right? Wouldn't we think that person was a fool to believe that their name and information just got there by chance through the random acts of, of wind and water and sand? And then when Dr. Lennox gives this illustration, he closes it out by saying, and I'm going to read this to you so I get it right. He says, we have only to see a few letters of the alphabet spelling out our name in the sand to recognize at once the work of an intelligent agent. And then he says, how much more likely then is the existence of an intelligent creator behind our human DNA, behind the massive biological database that contains no fewer than 3.5 billion with a B, 3.5 billion letters. Letters that represent and spell out our existence in the longest word yet discovered. Letters that represent this highly complex information. Uh, ones that display intelligent, rational instructions. Uh, in fact, molecular biologists even use language terms to describe it, like, like code and translation and transcription to describe how DNA works and how it reacts. Uh, and logic tells us if you have a code, you've got to have a code maker. Uh, it tells us if you want to publish a book, you've got to have an author. It tells us you can't explain the drawing out of a set of blueprints if you don't have an architect. And, and so in that same vein, it would seem like DNA is probably the strongest indicator in our world that there is an intelligent designer behind its existence. So you see, the more of the discoveries in the heavens and in the created order that we find, the more clearly we see God's power. And the more clearly we see God's power, the more confidence 
that we should place in his word. That's why David wrote, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And, and while that's up there, just look at those carefully, at those words, those phrases. And let me ask you, do you want your soul to be revived? Do you want to grow in wisdom? Do you want to have a happy heart and a discerning mind? Do you want to be connected to something that will last forever? Something that you can count on to be completely true and thoroughly right? Do you want to have a worldview that's logically consistent? Do you want to have an outlook on life that has real evidence to sustain it and possibly most importantly to have the words of truth that are going to help you through the ups and downs of this world Uh, and if you do I commend to you this book the book that knows you there's no other book in the world like it in which the author actually works his purposes in and through its words to change hearts and minds in fact David tells us it's perfect It's trustworthy, it's radiant, uh, and his words are more to be desired than gold, uh, even than much fine gold and sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. Actually, the greatest reward for you and me as we gather every week to study this book. Uh, This book that changes people's lives every single day. This book that soldiers carry into battle in their shirt pockets. Not this size, of course. The book that our leaders take the oath of office with their hands on. Uh, The book that our brothers, the the Gideons, cover uh, virtually every hotel room in the country to leave a copy for the tired and lonely to turn to when they're on the road. Uh, The book that prisoners of war recite in their captivity as much as they can from memory. Uh, The book that the persecuted church from China to Syria... Uh, willingly dies to possess just a few pages of the book that knows you and me in the deepest places of our hearts. And so if you were to ask me today why I believe that my worldview uh, and the one I hope you share of biblical Christianity is the best choice, the answer is simple. Uh, Its teachings are logically consistent. It accurately describes reality as it is. And it speaks directly to the human condition and evidence and experience but even more than all of those things, and most importantly, because it points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because you see, Psalm 19 today, uh, through it, David invites us to far more than a blind faith uh, removed from the world of material science and nature and uh, of the realities of life, trials and tragedies, but we're invited to join in the mystery and the beauty and the praise and the wonder of God who created the world Uh, and who didn't just create it, Uh, and then wind it up like a great cosmic clock and let it go, but who in the words of John 3.16 so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, And because of that great love, uh, that love that loved us first, a love that reached out to us when we were running from him, uh, a love that sent his Son to the cross to provide for my redemption should drive each of us to our knees with David's closing line from Psalm 19, his closing prayer really, when he says, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Is that your prayer today? Uh, is, Is Christ your rock and your redeemer? Is your worldview built on the solid ground and the firm foundation of God's word? Because if it is, 
This table is where it will lead you. Lead you with a head and a heart ready to be filled with all that our God has for us in worship. The kind of worship that William Temple describes as taking submission of all of our nature to God. The kind of worship that's the quickening of our conscience by His holiness. That's the nourishment of our mind with His truth. The kind of worship that is the purifying of our imagination by His beauty and the opening of our hearts by His love and the surrender of our will to His purpose. And all of that gathered up in the word and the work and the worship of Jesus Christ whose world this is. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, it is truly right, Lord, and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Lord's Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you would unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time. Show us yourself, Lord, that eyes may be opened and hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.